Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And this is Storymakers Show. And today on Storymakers, what's happening? Well, we are going to check in. Then we are going to talk about audience. And you had a particular angle on it. I did. Do you remember? Well, I think that sometimes there's always a balance between our beautiful, authentic voice and the idea of writing for an audience as being sort of a limitation. All right. So the limitations and benefits of writing for an audience. And, and just kind of how we use that as writers and artists and filmmakers and how we don't. And yeah, it's going to be fun. It's going to be juicy. Juicy. You know who I'm saying that to? Who? Our audience. <laughs> we know you're out there. Thank you for being out there. Downloading and being juicy. Us. Yeah. Um, okay. So, but first, what are you working on? Well... I have been deeply ensconced in mathematics. Angie is on fire about math. Like it's cre- not just math, it's though, but it's creativity, growth mindset. It's a growth mindset, and it's about having a concrete way to dig into some of the things that felt perhaps a little less concrete in the original first time around with, with the Carol Dweck's book, right? Which was probably a product of my being a new parent and so not Carol having a lot Dweck's of sleep. Book is called Mindset, Mindset, and it I guess it came out in 2007 when our kids came out. Yes. <laughs> also, our produced new, the our same new, year. Our new car, the yes. new car, the new car, our newest car, <laughs> is a 2007 model year, and which it, actually it means does look new when it's mm. sitting next to the 1996. It's true. It's true. So um, great. So that's exciting. I actually want to say that you are making math really exciting. It's an art. And then you're performing math. Mm-hmm. You're creating like collaborative improvisational performances with middle schoolers about math. Yeah. In the sense that you're teaching math. No, I math dig what way. you're saying and it sounds like it might be creepy. So. Uh, no, you're teaching. <laughs> you're in there teaching. My God. No, they're, uh, it's, it's amazing. And I haven't yet figured out how to 100% integrate it into the work we do with our students, but I do. Th- I already feel it, you know, impacting. Like when we had our coaching session today, uh-huh. our, our office hours, I could, oh, I could the feel the mindset thinking kind of moving into uh, this other space where you know someone was like, "Oh, I feel like this thing's going off the rails," and you know, it's it's like actually you're capable. You know, you will find the answer way faster than someone who's not you is going to find the answer. Okay, I really, really okay. want you to tell our listeners the story about the the two groups who, who wrote essays, the study. Oh, right. So I'll have to find the, in the show notes, we'll have a link to the study. Hopefully. But the, <laughs> there was a study that, sh- that was basically, it was for English class, and it was students in high school writing essays. And one group of students got just standard feedback. They didn't, I don't even know if they got graded. I don't think they did. I think they just got standard feedback. And another group got standard feedback as well, but they've got one other piece. And I guess this is how you, you know, develop an experiment, control for everything else. One group got the same kind of feedback as the other, as the other group. But they got one additional sentence, and the additional Wait, sentence. Before you say what it is, say the results, because that's how you told it to me first. And I right, like it's that. a better joke that way. <laughs> um, so, 
what happened then is those students actually went on to out, you know, outperform the other students in subsequent years. Yeah, and so for years, for this, years, this one line had an enormous impact on the group of students who randomly were selected to receive the one line. Yes. And the one line was... Drum roll. I'm giving you this feedback because I believe in you. Like, that is deep. That is deep. That is what we all really want. We want somebody... That's Here's the I other want. piece. <laughs> Maybe that's not what we all want. Maybe it's just what I want. No, no. I think there's this other piece. So, uh, And again, I'll find a citation for this. So someone did a meta study looking at what makes successful teaching as far as actions go? What are the actions that are occurring? What, what, what do you mean by successful? Like the students learn? Yeah. The students like you? <laughs> no, no. I think it's that, you know, we see outcomes over time that correlate with what our goals are ostensibly in having this experiment called public education. <laughs> and this person, so this person's meta study examined 70,000 educational studies Whoa. that crossed 300 million students. All right. And the number one thing correlated with learning outcomes was students giving themselves feedback, reporting out on their own performance mm. was like the number one thing. The other thing was further down, but it was like number four out of 150. Okay was having a teacher they trusted. Hmm. So when we get feedback like, I'm giving you this feedback because I believe in you, if you're getting it from someone you don't believe in, mm -hmm. it doesn't have that impact. Right. But if you have a teacher you believe in, you have someone, and I'm using the word teacher, but again, if we're talking about feedback for writing, if you have a reader that you respect and they're coming back at you with things you kind of don't want to hear, try to remember that sentence because as a reader, they're giving you the fact that they took time to read your stuff. I'm giving you this feedback because I believe in you is inherent. Yeah, it really is. And it's the most wonderful thing about getting incredibly intense feedback, mm -hmm. right, is, I mean, and that's what's been interesting for me, speaking of what I'm working on, you know, editing with these high level, you know, industry professionals is right. that they are not doing this because of our years of friendship or because I've done it for them or, because you know, they're doing it because they believe in this project mm -hmm. and what we can do with it, which is, you know, terrifying and wildly thrilling. Right. So I, um, what I'm working on is waiting until um, next week when I expect to get notes, um, which I will be able to be very grateful for over the holidays. <laughs> <laughs> Happy holidays to And you. I will then try to fix everything, but we'll find out what, what the notes are. Yeah. So. But I also, uh, you know, I had that project, that little, whatever, the project that I worked on. Um, while I was looking for an agent and I handed that over to two readers whom I really trust. Mm -hmm. um, so tomorrow I'll also be getting notes from them. Right. And um, 
you gave me really great coaching, actually. You said, write a letter to self so that, you know, before you send it to them. And I really didn't want to. And I felt like, well, I have to kind of reread it again and da da da. And, I, and then I just did it. Like I just wrote the letter in one of my early morning sessions. And then I gave it to them. And one of the things I said to them is, you know, what is this? Because it's kind of short, right? It's like mm. 35,000 words. So is it part of something longer? Could it, you know, is it, what, what is it, right? And, and I started answering that question because that's what happens, right? I mean, that's the whole. So I started coming up with possible ideas for a triptych where this mm-hmm. could be one mm-hmm. third of it. But I'm also very curious, you know, I'm open. If they say, yes, you know, this could double in size by, by just going deeper, um, that I'm, I'm open to that too. So I'm kind of thinking about that. That's what I'm thinking about. So, and one more thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I, I do in my newsletter, um, I, I, for Book Writing World, I, I did a whole series of, um, called a practical alphabet for writers. Mm-hmm. And now I'm doing a whole series called an impractical, impractical alphabet yes. for writers. And so last week I published W and, um, but to this morning I wrote Z. Oh, so, and so I have X, Y, and Z are are in the hopper. So t- so wow. tomorrow will um, X will go out. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, but it, but the the two together feel like a completed work. You know, there's some that's something else I've done. I've done these these two alphabets. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. that's a little book of some sort. Mm-hmm. So who knows what's gonna happen with that? But. Sounds like something we might put on our website that you could download for right. Your I mean, email. I think I just have to check in with my agent about it and then see. Maybe I maybe maybe it feels bigger. I'm hearing that maybe it feels bigger. I mean, it might be like I don't know. It could be a small press thing. It could be. Mm-hmm. It also could be a really cool illustrated thing and right. illustrate like an, an you know. You know who are great illustrators? No. Well, they. are. Our roommates are amazing. Our children, yes. Illustrators. And I will say my understanding is that the industry likes to pick the person. <laughs> they don't really want you to come with your own brilliant 12-year-olds. But what do I know? But we'll I see. I don't think you do know. We'll see. I feel open. Okay. Open to the universe. So, audience. Bum, bum, bum. So tell me, tell me how this was percolating for you. Well, I think... The whole question of audience kind of bounces back and forth. And actually, you know, I was talking to... In your own brain, you mean? Well, in my own brain. And um, when you're doing, like, corporate writing, audience is always sort of top of mind. Who are you writing to? What do they respond to? How do you interact with, you know, the personas of your audience? Um, Can I just say mm-hmm. something about that? Like, because in brand, right, they're always saying to you in marketing, they're always saying, like, pick one person, right? create this one person. And I kind of have this group of real people. Like, I have these sort of, you know, 30 or so amazing 50 students, people that I that yeah. I work with, like, all, all the time and deeply and for years. And so that so I have a sort of have faces but Mm -hmm. it's not one you know and i can never it doesn't it doesn't here's the thing like if you were to i mean let's go to corporate writing yeah you would probably look at what are the things that they share in common that make them so compelling for you as a coach and a teacher what are the things that those people share in common and then you would build a persona sort of off of that diagram of my students it's like a flower like they're all right a petal and where do they meet right they, so they like me. 
<laughs> so you would start with that. But the thing I was sort of bouncing around with audience is that, again, like in corporate, uh, we're always thinking about who is reading this, you know, what's their world like, how do I use their language to help them access what I'm offering. And at the same time, I've noticed that sometimes when we come from locations of privilege, we think our audience is everyone. <laughs> and when we don't, often we have this other goal as artists to speak to our communities. Right. And I just want to say I love that you're sort of like when we come from privilege, speaking from experience, this is what it is. And when we don't come from privilege, speaking from experience, this is what it is. It's nice. You can have a conversation with yourself. I do frequently. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but looking at then at that notion of something where you're making a choice to engage your reader and... Mm -hmm. I think it is a mistake to be coming from that place of privilege where it's like, oh, everyone's my audience. Well, no, <laughs> everyone's not your audience. And and just to say growth mindset, it's OK to make a mistake. Absolutely. But if but when you find out that what you're standing on is someone else's toe or throat, then you do want to step off. <laughs> right. So. So I was sort of intrigued by this contradiction because we have this sense of like, how do we have authenticity in the face of intentionally engaging with an audience? And I think, you know, stepping away from privilege when you're looking at those places where you might be part of a community that is not um, overly privileged, uh, you start wanting to have conversations with those people right like this is this is my group this these are the people that i care about and i want to talk with them right mm -hmm. um and then you have this but it has to be accessible to all of these people and it's so i don't know that i have an answer i'm just trying to frame the conversation and here's what i want to say i want to talk about that accessible because um so i so i go to this dance class in santa rosa this wonderful just vibrant Zumba class mm -hmm. um, called Fitness Forward. I'll just shout it out and put it in the show notes. Um, and the anyway, it's just it's the teacher is great and open-hearted. And anyway, it's mostly women, identified women who go. And there's like one guy who comes now, you know, sometimes. And so she's very like, you know, like she'll she's very used to shouting out like, look around you at all the beautiful women. And then she'll, and she'll be like, and man. <laughs> <laughs> but... And there was like one song that was like, you know what, like go girl. I, I should, I don't know this. I don't know anything about it. But it was like, you know, I had go girl. Like, what do mm -hmm. I need? What do I need? I need go girl, whatever. I don't know. I'm not, not going to put, even put it in the show notes. You kind of know what I'm talking about or you just don't. doesn't matter. Point is, and she was sort of like, well, he can, he's not going to be offended because he knows the world needs strong women or whatever. But the point to me was. If you're if you if you're ever not in the dominant position, if you're if you in any way ever don't occupy the assumed universal, then you do know how those th you know how to access things that are not you. Do you know what I mean? You know how to you don't it doesn't have to be something you can totally identify with. 
because you've learned the skill of accessing what is not you, which doesn't mean you shouldn't have the opportunity to identify in deeper, richer, more direct ways with characters. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It doesn't mean you should always have to identify with across all the differences to the privilege norm or whatever. But but you know how to do it, Mm -hmm. right? It's I mean, I mean, I have to say, so I'm sure I've mentioned this before. Saturday Saturday Night Live had a skit with Emma Stone, which was a spoof commercial. And it was like Fisher Price Wells for Boys. <laughs> you totally have talked about this, but I a long time ago. I love that skit because just because there's one moment when she just looks at this kid and you know, it's he's rep he's standing in for a whole bunch more. Um and says, This is not for you. <laughs> to someone else. To the the sort of gender normative kid, right? This is not for you. Everything else is for you. This is not for you. And I think there's such amazing power. Did you say wishing wells? I feel like you just said boys who love wells or something. Wells for boys is but what it's, it's wishing called. Well. Oh, wishing wells for boys. <laughs> just to clarify, it's not a septic system. No. <laughs> and, not and a water pump. There's something so powerful about that. And... I think there's so many times that if we don't get in with readers who understand what's important to us as writers, we're not going to get that I'm giving you this feedback because I believe in you. Because what do you believe in if you don't understand what I'm going for? (sighs) Yeah, but I guess how you pick those readers Mm -hmm. won't necessarily be obvious or... um, or sort of facile. I'm not saying it will yeah. be, but I think that was sort of the notion. It's like, you know, we're kind of in this situation where um, we think about our work and we want to have these wider audiences. Sometimes we run into gatekeepers in that pursuit who are afraid to cross those kind of boundaries. Sometimes they're willing to cross them, but they really need to make sure that, you know, uh, it's done in in a way that uh, mitigates risk for a publisher, right? Um, And so I just find it's really interesting because... I know, like, with my first book, I've probably talked about this before, too. We're, we're getting to be old marrieds with our audience. I but know. <laughs> I love you guys. You're awesome. Um, we, But I just, with my first book, my agent sent it out to young women editors. And finally, I said, you know, send it to this guy. And um, mm. and he, he was the one who bought it. And, and I always felt like, you know, this was in the 90s. And I felt like part of the thing was that the young women were afraid that they would be seen as queer if they mm-hmm. published my book and and perhaps rightfully so in terms of that having real consequences at that time yeah and he you know was not afraid of that and no one was going to mistake him for a lesbian for a lesbian right um so and we'll put her book in the show notes as my well. book yeah <laughs> my book from the 90s it's 20 years old yeah because it was the late 21. 90s 21. No. To come out in 98 or 99? 99. Oh, next year it'll come out in 2000. <laughs> <laughs> Still not 20. <laughs> Still not 21. Still not, yeah. No, I really think it was 
I was anyway. <laughs> you won't go. I was very young. <laughs> but we've sort of talked about the costs of being a writer who does write to a specific audience that is, you know, not um standardly I don't even know, like mainstreamedly privileged. I'm trying to what are you trying to do? I think what I'm trying to do is like say that often when we are the people who are All right, let me back up. Okay. I feel like one of the things that's happened over time is that we've increased niche visibility and the correlate to niche visibility for most part in the short term, who knows about the long tail sales, uh, is that you're looking at a smaller section. So the total possible returns for a given piece are smaller. Right. When you pretend that you are the generic, it feels like people are much more willing to sort of push you out into the open and, you know, see if more people can find themselves in right, that. Right, right, right. Well, and that's the whole sort of thing. Although it's interesting because women buy more books than men, demographically speaking. And um, now there is sort of a thing where it's like harder to publish a male protagonist. And, and if it's dual, they'll start oh, with the woman and stuff like that. So but I should just shut up. No, not no, at no, all. No. I mean, because what's true is they're still publishing lots of men and the men are getting reviewed. And there's all sorts of things that aren't reflecting that but they are doing a little bit of shifting just because of who's actually buying the books, mm-hmm. um, which is, you know, demographically speaking, like sort of somewhat old, older women, the women in the second vast half We're of We're willing to engage with parchment. <laughs> and purchasing something. Yeah. <laughs> we have the wherewithal to purchase something and I but like But also parchment. audiobooks and... I don't know. I don't yeah. know everything. So I don't it, have but... an answer to what I was kind of going to, but I find that when I, I am thrilled, I am absolutely thrilled when I hear artists talking, even if I am, I am the person for whom it is not. Right. Right. I am so thrilled to hear the energy and the focus and the power behind knowing where your work fits for yourself and i'm sure it changes over time like i don't think artists necessarily stay in the same place but the momentum of having an audience that is not the generic and what i want to say is that you know the sort of circling back to the thing about um that we do know how to reach across difference and identify and especially the less sort of you're you're seen as the dominant voice and the less you're catered to as the dominant voice, the more skill you have at that. Mm. But and but also that's part of the kind of wonder of reading, right? And it's and and so um and so I think when people tap into that authentic voice, there is the chance for, for other people to oh, absolutely. connect and you know and um and that as human beings we are, like I always talk to my students about how we are so good at eavesdropping. We're so good at reading a situation. We're, we're trained. Some of us are. Well, yeah, in di- <laughs> to differing levels. But in terms of reading, like we're looking for clues, just like we do in life, for what's going on and mm-hmm. the nuance of something. And yeah, and we do have a certain survival skill level of being able to read people in situations, and we might get it wrong. 
but we are curious. Yeah. You know. But I also, you know, and, and this is tangential, so it's not That's all right. That's in contradiction. <laughs> Sometimes when you're living in a small town and you're Same. one of a few of your particular group, and even within your particular group, you're a smaller subset still <laughs> of your particular group. Are you group. just talking about your haircut? <laughs> it is true. This whole podcast was about my haircut. It's isolating. Like, it's hard when you look around and you're like, oh, um, there are people who look like me, but they're all married to men. <laughs> right? Um, there are... Very few queer women who look like I do. Don't I where know we it. live? Don't I know it? <laughs> <laughs> and it's thrilling to think about talking to a community of people who look like I do, who experience what I've experienced. Um, sort of funny to be in this place kind of post gay rights and even though there's this onslaught that's continuing on there's this way in which you know i don't even where were we we were somewhere and someone was like making some random comment i was like oh like walking down the street and having someone say i'm gonna kill you you fucking dyke like i've had that i think we were talking to our children (laughs) and that's probably not good. Well, no, about like speech violence and right. Um, I don't know. I'm sure it was good. I'm sure it was deep. And yeah, and resonant. and they were like so glad to hear that. Um, but to see like oh, I've been there. There's a way in which this isn't unfamiliar, right? Mm-hmm. And how important it is to our you know when you were plugged in to a community that was your community that that worked together, had its foibles, had its challenges. Most of them were that people were sharing each other's girlfriends. Yeah. Um, <laughs> it's that, that is just recycling. The highest form of Zero recycling waste. is reuse. Zero waste. The lesbian <laughs> community. I know. We're done being lovers. I will now be your friend. That's right. Um, oh my God. <laughs> I want to get that. Zero Waste could be like your web series. Or a band. Anyway, I kind of feel like I'm going off the rails. Just a hair here. But I just think it's so important. And I just want to say to the artists out there who are feeling like nobody wants to hear what I have to say. Or I'm not going to sell the way I want to sell if I don't access that generic. That there's a world of people out there waiting to hear your particular voice. Are you talking to me? I love your voice. I don't think you're pandering to the generic. Okay. Good to know. (laughs) (laughs) It is time for Steal This. Amateur poets borrow. Professional poets steal. What have you come across this week? In your readings or wanderings. That you would like to take and make your own. I'll go first because I actually have one I keep wanting to share and then forgetting about. Shall I? Yes. All right. And I actually talked to you about this. But um, so I read Olive again, which is the mm-hmm. follow up to Olive Kittredge. Just to be clear, she didn't read Olive 
a second time, <laughs> she read the next book called All of Again. Although I think it's reading leading a lot of people to reread mm-hmm. Olive Kittredge again. <laughs> I guess you can't reread it again unless you're reading it for the fourth third time. time or, yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, you're now you're doing the math. Yeah, but third is right because there's no different possibilities. Fourth is also right, though. Yes, three and above. <laughs> Anyway, um, so it 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 um, Olive Kittredge and did I talk about this already? Boy, we've been having a bit of a hard little season. <laughs> I know I've talked about it with you, but I don't think I talked about it on the podcast. My my dear old married audience, um, Olive Kittredge ends with this beautiful scene mm-hmm. where uh, that is that feels like the end of an arc. And um, I think I talked about it in our class. Yes. And it's just gorgeous. I mean, it's just gorgeously written. It's this beautiful, emotionally true moment it lands. Olive again picks up a few months later and lets us know that that moment lasted about five minutes. And then characters reverted mm-hmm. situations were torn asunder and and the you know and, and the uh, because life because life yeah and um and so and i thought this is such a gorgeous illustration of arc and the ways in which it is both wholly artificial and wholly true you know that you you couldn't so is that w-h-o-l-l-y for wholly artificial yes. and then h-o-l-y <laughs> for wholly true holy true how's how do you spell holy like full of holes h-o-l-e-y E-Y. yeah there's that too yeah and that's what i'm really because holy moly well, the part, part the point is you have to have some holes, you have to have some endings, you have to give it some space. What you would it doesn't make anyone want to go back and change the ending of all of Kittredge, or to nor does it make you sort of discount that arc or that moment, you know. And there's a way in which you then do see that moment trying to reassert itself through the rest of the book, and ha- and having changed her, even though it didn't change her wholly. Mm-hmm. And and for people who are working on memoir, I think this is so challenging because people feel like they have to, um, you know, they have to put the whole thing in, and the whole thing is like life. It's you mm. know, it, it would take you know the full eighty plus years to reenact, right? Um, and it wouldn't really be a story; it would be a life. So, so that so that's what I sort of wanted to steal from that was this kind of understanding that that what, the power of what you can do in story does rely on what you leave out as well as what you put in. Yes. Well, I mean, a story can be a syllogism. And if your syllogism keeps going, you kind of lose the focus. of Define your... syllogism. Syllogism is a logistic, uh, logical argument. So you have your premise and it's it's that structure that says, well, if this is true, and this is true, then this must also be true, right? So you mm-hmm. have a structure where you're setting your terms. You're saying, yes, we agree on this, and yes, we agree on this. Therefore, you must agree on that. Right. And um, stories are kind of, can be like that, not necessarily being didactic, but can be that piece. And if you look at Olive Kittredge waking up and hopping out of bed, right, um, at, the, at the end of the book, we come away with one meaning, because of this, 
because Olive was, you know, an a-hole and because she was, you know, not able to connect with people in whatever way, you know, this was true. So that when, when she changes, we're like, oh, and so that has changed. That is growth. Right. And then if you start a new book, you've kind of disrupted the syllogism. Right. So. Or you can you do a new one, but you're just using, it's like it's new. Mm-hmm. It's just entirely yeah. new. And it would be boring if we were exploring the deeply same territory. Right. No, and you feel her growth. It just isn't utter. Mm-hmm. And it there isn't, you know, so it sort of circles back. Right. So if you were going to do something like that, you take a character's, like, belief, they, they've made a change, and that change will ripple through their new you know choices, it, you know but it, it's not going to be, like, radically different. I think what that moment becomes in the new book is the inciting incident. Mm. Even though we don't, we get it, we don't replay it, right? Mm-hmm. But we get, we get... We're in the consequence of that moment, which mm-hmm. so it really did unbalance them and it really did make a, a huge change. But then they scurried b- back into their mm-hmm. right into their coping mechanisms. And so we get we la- we start in the aftermath of that inciting incident. But it's but it's referred to. They think about it. Right. And it's unsettled them and they're trying to figure out what to do next and how to move forward. And but I think I would say it's the inciting incident of the book and it is the kernel of the continuing mm-hmm. change. Nice. It's really gorgeous. That is it's awesome. It's really spectacular. Yeah. You? You? Uh, well, I mean, I think if we've been talking about, I've been reading 800 different articles by Joe Bowler. Um, Math and mindset. It's... The thing that strikes me most is when I look at the systems of school and look at the way I... St- we see you know she takes apart the idea of assessment right and there was a guy who i and i know i've talked about this before who had an a b test on his youtube channel and he was like i think everybody can code so follow this link and you know show me whether or not i'm right and so people would follow this link and when they got to the link they either got one the puzzles were the same and you fought, you did the same exercises to solve the puzzle. But in one version, you got points at the beginning. So you had 100 points to start. And every time you made a mistake, you lost two points, right? And if you hit the link and went to the B version, there what points just didn't appear. And didn't they also praise you when you, you did? Remember, there was some sort of praise. In I would have to look. The thing that struck me about it was points because I'm thinking about points right. within, within these other But when you've things. told the story, I think the other people got like a little like, good for you. Keep trying or whatever. Well, right. It was like that. But I think there was also the reminder that you lost points or just a remind, you know, keep trying. So there right. was, and I'll go back and look at yeah. it. But anyway, so that ultimately what he found was that people who had the fake points, the points that had no value right no meaning no, no meaning right? like just they just exist quiz. yeah they just points. existed within the context you of were this. given them at the beginning and then taken them right <laughs> you could not spend them anywhere they just had no tangible value people stopped trying sooner <laughs> when you gave them points and then took them away for making mistakes and to the extent that i think that the people who had the point system lost they gave up after seven tries so if they didn't solve it in seven tries they quit yeah and the people who didn't get points who i think got pra- some kind of praise or they might they got something but the people who got the no yeah. points 
tried 12 times on average before they would give up if they couldn't solve it. So when you're looking at the work that she's doing and you ask yourself, when we're setting up our schools and we're asking teachers to know where our kids are and to prove it to us. <laughs> they're like, they're in the classroom. You mean where they are academically? Yeah, where our, mm-hmm. where our children are academically. What is it that you don't understand? I mean, as a parent, I'm that person that I want to know. Like, is my child struggling with fractions? Is my child comprehending you know x y or z do they they're moving fast but do they have no real foundation like the parents worry <laughs> any hoodle um and so there's this whole like data driven aspect but the truth is data is challenging and so people tend to find and assess on what's easy for data assessment not for what is actually giving the students feedback they can build on. And so I find that hugely interesting and I'm hugely interested in how we think about activism and art and these other things and what are the feedback loops that we're using? Are we telling people who want to be artists who are struggling to do the right thing in the world, you have to do it a particular way? We have this 3.5% thing that we're talking about. How do we track impact? How do we track these things? Well, you, okay, we, we do need to wrap up, but just to say what that is so that we're not having a conversation without our audience. So the, Mary DeMocker, in her book about climate crisis, said it takes 3.5% of the population to change a situation. So it wasn't, you know, women who were, who were fighting for suffrage. It was 3.5%. wasn't, you know, everybody fighting for abolition. It was 3.5% of the population that that's sort of, for some reason, that's like this critical mass. That's the critical mass. Yeah. That makes a change, which feels sort of hopeful and exciting. Right. Anyway, I think I'm going off the rails a little bit, but anyway, saying that. the, the thing that excites me about the mindset piece is while I can see it easily in the context of mathematics in a public school classroom I think about it relative to a lot of different applications how do we apply it again like to activism how do we apply it how do we use feedback loops to help people be better allies how do we anyway so there you go yeah all right we are recording this podcast for you because we believe in you